interviewing the leading private equity executives and unlocking the secrets of success. Welcome to the Private Equity Podcast with Alex Rawlings. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Private Equity Podcast. Today, we are welcoming back Adam Coffey, Chief Executive of CoolSys, author, and a whole list of other things that he's got going on, both in his personal and professional life. Uh, But he's joining us again. So Adam's previous podcast session was all about acquisition and integration. And this one is all about the pinnacle of private equity, which is the exit strategy which for those that know Adam, he has a book called The Private Equity Playbook, and he's about to release, or it's been released, depending on when this podcast comes out, the new book called The Exit Strategy Playbook. So thank you very much for coming back, Adam, and sharing your insights once again. Alex, my man, good to be here. God bless your listeners out there. Uh, it's really early as you can look out my window. You know, the time change uh, is uh, is pretty substantial here. I got up early. I was pumping iron because of something you wrote on social media, which was our first podcast was the most downloaded podcast that you've had. And I'm thinking to myself, oh my God, the gauntlet's been laid. We have to do better than we did last time. We have to give better information, be more insightful. And so I, I, I got geared up for this podcast, let me tell you. Well, I'm pleased to hear that, Adam. And I don't think there's anything more exciting than certainly talking about exiting, as that's the, uh, as I mentioned, the pinnacle of anything private equity related. So as Adam said there, it's Adam's last podcast is the most downloaded of all our podcasts. But for those who've not listened to the previous podcast, and I highly recommend that you do, as that is all about how that you do acquisition and integration. And my God, has Adam done a lot of them. Adam, give us a 60 to, se- 60 to 90 second breakdown of you, please. Sure, absolutely. So four things about me. Number one, military veteran, U.S. Army. Military taught me something about discipline, teamwork, leadership. Uh, number two, engineering background. Just ask my wife. It makes me an anal retentive strategic planner. Uh, always a thousand steps already pre-planned out. The world changes, so you have to be adaptable. But Engineering definitely made me a meticulous planner. Uh, And then thirdly, General Electric. So I come from the GE heyday back in the Jack Welsh era, and it was GE that taught me how to run a business. And then fourth thing is just experience. I've spent the last 20 years as CEO of three different national uh, or international service businesses that I built for eight different private equity sponsors, primarily using the buy and build strategy which you know encompasses a, a lot of merger and acquisition activity. Uh, as of last count, I have bought and sold over a hundred businesses in my twenty-year career. Uh, my current current company at, at CoolSys uh, just completed my twenty-first acquisition yesterday, and twenty-two is coming short on the heels. So buy and build is something that I do a lot of. I've bought companies and sold companies that range from sizes of a million up to a billion. Uh, and so I've done that a, a hundred times. Uh, and literally, I, I think for most entrepreneurs who've built a business, exiting is kind of a one-time event. You know, they build a company, they get to a sufficient size, and then it's when it's time to exit, it's like it's their first time exiting. And so I wanted to take a hundred companies worth of, of acquisitions and, and exits and, uh, and put all that together in, in the latest book. 
Absolutely, absolutely. And we'll dive into uh, quite a bit of detail around that and seeing what um, uh, certainly what you've gone through. So, yeah, excited to uh, to do this. And if you're in, uh, if you're a portfolio executive and you're listening, prick your ears up. There's some really good value coming here and it's not coming from somebody who's just written a book. It's somebody who's still doing this right now and has a huge amount of history. And obviously, if you're in a private equity uh, professional, um, then uh, if you haven't already hit already uh, Adam's uh, inbox up trying to approach him, uh, I'm sure you will be doing after this conversation but uh, I do know he's got a big project with CoolSys uh, and you're very much on your way uh, to uh, to growing that business significantly um, to uh, to take it through to uh, to a big exit so um, here we go so Adam focusing on exits is everything we're going to talk about here in line obviously with your book and obviously your experience what one mistake do you see either private equity firms or portfolio companies making at the exit stage and of course what would you do to correct that? So I, I think in today's market, you know, the multiples being paid for companies are really, really high. There's a lot of capital chasing, chasing businesses. And, you know, if there's, if there's anything, given the volatility in the world that, I, that I'm seeing today, I, I think hold periods need to start compressing. Uh, things are changing very rapidly. Very high multiples are being paid. We don't know how long that will last. We don't know how long kind of the low interest rates environments, you know, will continue to sustain itself. Uh, and so it, uh, you know, if interest rates start going up, leverage starts to become more expensive, multiples are going to have to compress. And so I, I would say one mistake I see, I, I, I see people is uh, making just from a PE perspective, I think is waiting too long to exit. When you've got a company in a position to get a three times, four times MOIC, uh, sticking around for a year to try to get to you know a five bagger or a six bagger potentially uh, can can also just expose you to unnecessary risk. So I, I would say right now in the world of, of private equity, ring the bell soon, ring the bell often, take your high IRRs and uh, and a three year, four year kind of exit. Uh, at a at a little bit lower multiple, probably a better prospect than getting stuck with a company because you waited a little too long and something changes, whether it be global pandemic, interest rates, uh, inflation, any number of things could uh, could change the investment world uh, on a dime, and and we're seeing that we're living through that right now. So I think be quicker, be more focused on on smaller, you know, MOICs potentially, as long as you hit your, your targets and do them quicker. Excellent. Excellent. So what should private equity-backed portfolio companies be doing better or even more of to prepare for a sale? By nature of working with private equity sponsors, most portfolio companies have a very sophisticated financial reporting systems. You know, the numbers are going to be correct. The PE guys are going to hire the best bankers on the planet. And so the marketing material is going to be really good. One of the areas that I think management teams really need to focus on is, is call it the management meeting itself. And, you know, I, I often talk about when I'm lecturing at, at colleges and universities uh, about the intangibles. And this is an area, you know, think about President Barack Obama. What did he sell the American people? He sold them hope. And you know, what's hope? You can't put hope in a box, put it on a shelf. It's an intangible thing. The management meetings are really, really important. And for a leadership team, putting in the time to practice their pitches, 
to have a high energy level to make sure, you know, you know, oftentimes a management team may be doing 15 management meetings over a compressed period of time. Sometimes they're two a day and then there's a dinner and these are long days and they're mentally very exhausting and grueling. And, and so the energy levels can, can ebb and flow. And I think management teams really need to focus on giving those presentations, speaking with passion, you know, having passion doesn't matter what widget your company is manufacturing or what the company is, is selling or what type of service you're providing. You know, CEOs need to have passion, passion about people, passion about growth, passion about taking care of their customers' needs, expanding the business. And oftentimes where I see the difference between getting an outsized multiple and getting an average multiple is the passion that the management team and leadership team puts into that management meeting and presentation. So rule of thumb, when you're giving a presentation, let's say a management meeting is uh, four hours in length, uh, there's probably 60 slides, 30 of them in an appendix, there's probably 30 slides you're actually going to get through. You know, For every slide someone is going to present, that should represent an hour of practice. That's kind of always been my model. Uh, and this is the time for people who really struggle with public speaking have to overcome that fear. And if they just simply can't add more members of the member of, of the leadership team to the presentation so that others can then help you carry the load if, uh, if you struggle as an individual with public speaking. So get comfortable with public speaking, be a, a leader not just a manager. You know, managers manage things and leaders inspire people. When you're in an exit process, you know, so private equity guys ring the bell earlier, take a smaller return, world's really volatile. On the management side, focus on having passion for the business, on giving excellent presentation about the business. And that passion will translate to higher multiple and more excitement on the buyer community side. I definitely, definitely agree with that. I think one of the key traits that we look for in in good executives when hiring for our clients is people that have a lot of that and demonstrate that passion, and uh, and enjoy very much enjoy what they do. And uh, there's always the good saying that you know passion breeds passion. So uh, if you're with somebody who's energetic and upbeat and passionate about what they do, then you'll come away from that meeting and probably wanting to do. It inspires people. It helps Absolutely. in recruiting top talent. It also helps in retaining top talent. Perfect, perfect. So, Adam, I've had the uh, very uh, privileged uh, opportunity to have a pre-read of your book before it uh, obviously goes on uh, goes on sale. And in your book, you talk a lot about advisors. Um, and I know myself from trying to find suppliers, if you want to call it that, uh, to my business. You know, there's very good people um, in a very small box somewhere, and then there's a lot of really bad advisors and bad suppliers. So what advice would you give about how you've identified good advisors and also how you've avoided bad people to influence, obviously, any process during, uh, obviously, an exit, but also during the whole process of growing a, a portfolio company? So I, I really think there's, there's two facets to answering that question. The first is recognizing that you need advisors. Let's start right there. So entrepreneurs who build businesses uh, obviously are experts in their field, really good at, at, at their craft, whatever that craft might happen to be that the, that the business pursues. But oftentimes they, they misconstrue their own expertise in running and building a business and thinking they're fully prepared 
to lead the exit of their company without any outside help. Don't need advisors. Advisors are just people who, who couldn't earn a living by doing, so they earn a living by teaching or they charge me money to tell me what I already know and reinforce my own beliefs. And, and we need to break that mold first. People need to, to recognize that, that working with advisors, exiting a business, these are, are really specialty areas. And you know, when you think about a, an entrepreneur who spends 10 years, 20 years building a business, you know, how many exits have they done? You know, none, you know, maybe one, maybe they built something earlier in their career, but generally speaking, they can count the number of exits they've done on one hand. You know, we just talked about over 20 years, I've bought and sold a hundred companies. Uh, and, and so, you know, you need to recognize that you are not an expert at all things. You are an expert at running and growing your business. And there really is a time and a place to bring in outside help to help you with different uh, different issues or problems that you have while building a business or when it comes time to exit. So, so let's first establish the need for entrepreneurs to actually be okay reaching out to others and engaging professionals who spend their entire careers doing nothing but solving a very similar problem for multitudes of people. They can bring best practices to bear. So let's, let's leave that side now. Let's go to the other side. So the world is filled with advisors. How do I find good ones? I tried in the book to identify the kind of four key advisors I think you need to have when selling a company. But there's many advisors beyond those four who could help you in building your business or in running your business. You're a classic example when people are looking for key talent. You know, they need a professional who knows how to go out and find key talent uh, based on the work to be done, based on, on the needs of, of the job search, you know, the specifics. And so I try to use some generic resources. It was funny because when I was writing the book, I was using specific links. And just during the editing process, links were no longer working or you know, websites got changed. I'm like, I threw up my hands and said, somehow I need to make these leaks, these links, just generic searches that people can do. Uh, but you know, I try to help by, by thinking about, first of all, size. So let's think about how big is the company that is seeking the help? And then what is the likely type of advisor, the size of advisor that, that, that is going to be required? Where are the resources online that people can go to find you know, good advisors? Uh, and then who else can they potentially engage to help them vet advisors? Because as you said, there's going to be a thousand advisors for any specific task like the world of any, any industry, there will be good, those who add extreme value, and there will be those who are mediocre or, or, or really charge a lot of money, but don't really get you where you need to be. And so I think referrals are important, asking the right questions you know, about, I'm speaking generically, so we're not talking specifics, but you know, it's, it's really spending the time to vet. You know, can you give me examples of companies that you've done recent engagements with? I want to talk to the CEO. You know, I want to understand what their need was, how you fulfilled that, and you know, was the outcome good, you know, or or bad or indifferent? Um, and and so it's engaging people that might be in your circle today, trusted advisors, you know, lawyers, accountants, what have you, uh, may know of or be able to give referrals. Once you get the referral, don't just assume that, that that's the right fit. You need to really dig in and think ahead of time before the contact, you know, what are the 20 questions that I really need to ask? 
you'll find oftentimes that that advisors specialize sometimes in specific size businesses, sometimes in specific functional expertise, but it might be industry related. You may be from a different industry. You got a great referral from someone who's in a different industry and that consultant or advisor's ability to help you is somewhat constrained because they're industry specific. So it, it's uh, you need to really do your homework. You, you need to sit down, think about what are the questions I want to ask. And so, you know, in selling a business, I talk about the need for personal tax help, for uh, accounting help, for legal help, for investment banker help. I try to list the, the, the sources. I try to then give some type of indicator based on size revenue of the company what is the size and type of firm you should be seeking? You know, if you're a small business with a million dollars in revenue and you're going to sell your business and you're looking for an investment banker, if you go to the top five investment banks on the planet, uh, they're not even going to return your call because the fees that'll be generated from the sale of your business aren't going to even get their attention. And so there's the right size tool to use for a job. Uh, you know, if you're trying to cut down a tree, you can use a saw, you know, or you could use a tank and, and a cannon. <laughs> you know, there's a right tool for the job. You have to make sure you're picking the right tool. So I, I do talk a lot about that. Based on your size, there is a, a, a tier of, of advisory help that you should seek to engage. And then based upon what the area of expertise is, you know, what are the questions that you should ask? You know, who should you, you know, let's be honest. Most people that hire any kind of advisory help don't check references. They just don't. And a lot of companies that give references, of course, they're going to stack the deck and give references. They're going to hand out names of people who are going to say good things about them. And so you have to be able to speak to people who have worked with a company, worked with an advisor, ask the right questions, try to determine for yourself. You know, there is some ownership level that you have to have in making sure that you're vetting these, these advisors uh, appropriately. And, and I think if you do that uh, and use some of the resources, you know, as example for selling company that, that I, I highlight in the book, it'll quickly teach you how to think about it. Okay. You know, I'm this size makes sense. I got to go to this kind of tier of people. You know, it's a local firm, regional firm. No, it's a national firm or international firm. And now I know where the resources are and I can start looking for things that line up with me. And then I use some example questions. People can think about their own you know, specific set of, set of circumstances. And I think you can, you can quickly get to making good calls versus bad calls. You know, there, there is good luck, uh, but there's also people who've done their homework and create good luck uh, and, and by doing the work. And I think you can do that in this case. I'm definitely a big believer of uh, it's, the luck scenario is is the people that have done taken the right actions to get to the uh, the desired outcome uh, and uh, have done the exactly. right things and therefore get lucky. Um, I think there's something in Suits where Harvey Specter says, um, "I don't, uh, I am, I am not lucky. I make my own luck." Uh, exactly, that's, that's luck awesome. is winning the lotto. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and anything above than that, you've got to take the right actions to. Uh, to certainly do that. You mentioned obviously when you've got at the first point is is identifying that there should be a need, you know, that you have an advisor and okay, we're going to need to bring advisors in here. I know a lot of private equity firms and even chief execs who, you know, have a perception that they can either do it themselves 
or they have the resources potentially in the business to fulfill it. And sometimes I'm sure that is the case, but I'm also sure a lot of times it's it's not. How did you go about kind of identifying where you needed advisors and where that you didn't? So I'm a big fan of, of using advisors. You know, when you're running a private equity backed business, or even if you're eventually running a business to sell, when I think about EBITDA, which is kind of how, you know, the, the level playing field that is used for private businesses to be valued, you know, by the universe of buyers, whether they're private equity and financial buyers or strategic, everyone's focus is on EBITDA. And the use of advisors, while it costs money and in, in it, in it's, it's cash that actually has to be paid and comes out. It, uh, it doesn't impact the EBITDA line. It's an ad back. It's, a, it's an accepted practice to bring in uh, consultants to help you. And those are one-time costs uh, and they fit the textbook definition of an ad back to EBITDA. So if I'm building a business and I know that at some point I'm going to sell it, whether I'm an individual or I'm a private equity backed company, I know that using consultants and advisors is going to be EBITDA friendly. It's a cash. I have to have the cash. But if I do, it's not going to impact my earnings at all. So what I love about thinking about using advisors, and I use them all the time. And so I'm happy to give you some, some examples. When I, when I think about three levers for growth of any business, I, I think about organic growth. Uh, and organic growth is... Uh, selling the same product for more, selling more of the same product at the same price, or you know, increasing volume or making strategic pivots in a business and creating new products and services to sell to the same customer base. And so when I think about different ways, you can grow price, you can grow uh, organically by selling more, you can do strategic pivots, sell more things to the same customer. You know, These are great areas where consultants can really help. So specific example, uh, when I started at CoolSys, I recognized that the sales force that we had was really focused on account management and expanding business within the existing brands that we were doing business with. But we really had no effort around organic growth. There was no one out knocking on doors looking for new logos or new brands for us to engage with. Uh, and so I brought in a, a group out of Chicago called the Alexander Group. They work with the Fortune 500. 80% of their clientele are Fortune 500 companies. They're experts at one thing, really. Well, I shouldn't say that because they're probably going to reach out to me and say, <laughs> no, Adam, we're experts at many things. But what I think of them when I think of the Alexander Group is I think of they really understand the sale process. And when I engage them, it's expensive. I pay the money. They help me blow up my entire sales organization and say, let's talk about your customers. How do they buy? You know, where do they make decisions within the organization? Very quickly, we, we decided we needed hunters, uh, people looking for new logos, and we needed farmers, people who were going to be trying to sell additional products and services or more volume within an existing relationship. And those are two different kinds of people, two different kinds of structures. We're going to need national account sales which is when there's a centralized sale decision being made. Good example, Target makes a lot of decisions in Minneapolis. Uh, and so need a national account you know, representative to own that relationship. Uh, some other brands that we work with have a regional decision-making you know, uh, uh, process. Even though it's a national brand, they may make decisions in several different regions you know, of the, the, the country that, that we're serving. And so as a result of that, I need to have a regionally-based uh, sales force. So someone who's knocking at a high level on, on national 
buyers, someone who is also then dealing with regional decision makers. And then I need hunters, I need farmers. So I bring in this group and in a matter of about six months, uh, they help us totally redesign the sales effort. What happened last year during a global pandemic, my largest sales year ever, we added over 6,000 new customer locations during a global pandemic. Uh, and so I, I, you know, one year I'm, I've got the expense, I'm working with consultants, we're blowing things up, we're redesigning. Next year, largest sales ever. You know, kind of a direct correlation between the two. So I see consultants being used when it's, uh, you know, a specific area would be growth. Another area might be margin improvement. So I have an existing revenue stream and it yields a certain level of earnings. And what can I do to be more efficient at the processing of that revenue? Uh, it may include a technology component, systems related. How do I make, make it easier to either manufacture something or to provide a product or service? How do I become more efficient? Tons of consulting groups you know, that are, are, are there to help me take existing revenue and be more efficient with it. Plenty of consultants when it comes to tax advice, when it comes to accounting advice, what accounting methodology should I use? You know, I do a lot of construction. I need to use a percentage of completion accounting. Hey, I'm running on QuickBooks. How do I get from here to there? How do I go from a cash-based accrual method to you know, to an accrual-based method of accounting, you know, there's there's consultants there. Hey, legal, uh, I have a generalist who helps me with slip and falls, number of different types of issues, um, qualifying to do business in different places. But what about when I face a, a very specific legal need or challenge, like selling a business? That's a specialty area of practice. You know, when you think of medicine, uh, not too many people would say, I'm going to go to the dentist to get brain surgery, or I'm not going to go to my family doctor and ask them to remove a tumor in my head because it's cheaper. They're going to say, I want a brain surgeon. So I think when it comes to medicine, people understand the need for a specialist. And when it comes to business, they quickly forget those lessons. And you know they're looking for cheap, or they're looking for, or they're thinking they can just handle it themselves. Why hire someone and go through the expense? We can take care of this. One of the reasons is you get expertise from a business. They don't know your business, but they generically understand the problem. And they've done a number of engagements with a number of firms, and they can bring best practice sharing, you know, shared learnings from multiple engagements. Again, it's like selling a company. I've sold 100. Most entrepreneurs are going to sell one time, you know, and or twice, you know, maybe they'll go back to the well and build another company. But you learn more by doing it a hundred times than you do doing it one or two times. And so that's really what gap the consultants bring. It's friendly to earnings. It's an add back to EBITDA. It gives you surge capacity. Oftentimes, everybody in your organization has a day job. And so you look at a, at a specific problem or need and you say, geez, do I hire three employees to take care of that need? I could probably, you know, for the money I'm going to spend with a consultant, I could probably solve this problem myself internally uh, if I hired three people. And while those people have vacations, they get sick, you know, they, they, uh, they also are an operating expense because they're on your payroll. I could bring a consultant in, a consultant could bring a team of 10 people, help me solve a problem very quickly, and then get out of my organization and be an ad back and be friendly to earnings. So there's a lot of different ways to think about advisors. From my perspective, 
Uh, it provides uh, uh, quick help, best practice sharing, can get me knowledge that we don't have in an organization, and it can provide surge capacity that the organization doesn't have because everybody has a day job, and I can solve problems, multiple problems, very quickly. So I love using consultants. And I would have been a guy earlier in my career who would have definitely said, you know, why hire somebody to tell me what to do? I'll do it myself. You know, that was a, a naive approach for a young man to have. But as I've matured and gotten older and, and, and certainly learned over, over the decades, you know, I am a big fan of bringing expertise into a business that doesn't have it for limited engagements, limited fees, add backs to earnings, add extreme value. It's a great fit. Makes sense. Couldn't agree anymore. I think, you know, certainly with growing uh, raw selection, I've been very much, can we do it internally? Can we do it this way? And, you know, if you can get that external help, if you can get that external input of people who know and understand, um, then it, it certainly accelerates the whole process and makes everything, you know, the business grow and everything move faster uh, rather than uh, just taking longer and saving uh, a few quid, which, you know, doesn't end up uh, bringing value on the uh, on the back end. So a big question coming up for you here because you've got a whole book on it, but how can specifically private equity portfolio companies improve on their, their actual sales process? I think in today's world, again, you know, there's an evolution that is constantly taking place. It's driven by a number of external factors. Gone, I think, today are broad sale processes where 100 teasers are going out to 100 potential buyers. 50 NDAs are signed, 50 books are going out, 30 management management meetings are taking place. Kind of a shift that I've definitely seen over the last couple of years is a much more targeted and focused effort. Uh, a lot of people right now, especially those with newer funds or big funds, are, are seeking to, to get a preemptive early look at a, at a business. And so the investment banker's role uh, still very, very important to the overall process. But, but these sales events now, these exits are, are becoming much more boutique driven. And instead of going out to a large group, there's maybe 10 phone calls that are made, maybe five NDAs are signed. And very quickly, you're getting to exclusivity. And I think in the private equity universe, people are recognizing that multiples are high. Right. So that's a given. I'm going to pay too much for this company. And so is everyone else. So you got money that has to be deployed. I would tell you, you know, that, that the successful PE firms are just stretching a little bit now. If I buy a small asset and I pay one turn too much, you know, does it really matter at my exit five years later when I'm selling something for four times, five times the size? You know, is it really going to kill me? No. Well, it's better to lock up that asset before a broad process drives the price up to where I'm going to be anyway. May as well get a proprietary look. So I think your more sophisticated PE firms are going for truncated processes. They're laying down walkaway numbers for entrepreneurs and they're stretching the multiple even further than it's already stretched because you can't sell something in five years if you don't own it today. Uh, and, and so move quicker, pay a little bit more, think about how you're going to blend down that acquisition multiple and recognize that when your fund is going to be compared to other funds historically, 
Uh, everyone's paying high multiples today. It's the nature of the business. So the return profiles may be somewhat moderated on that vintage fund that made this vintage you know, purchase. But what I am seeing, because I do a lot of advisory work too, where I, I'm, I'm giving some opinions on, on companies for, for different PE firms, I'm seeing a lot of people trying to stick to their very disciplined guns and trying to follow a process that they put in place five years ago, 10 years ago, when market conditions were very different. So someone who is seeking to play the game in private equity has to buy companies in order to play. It's a, it's a requisite. Someone gives you money, you got to put that money to work. And I have literally seen funds that six years in have only you know deployed about 60% of their capital because they're being too selective, too passive, and they're literally losing every time you know there is a, a potential uh, a company to acquire that makes a lot of sense. So I think on the PE side, people definitely need to be more aggressive on the buy side. When it comes to exiting and selling, uh, I think it's really spend the time, do the work, you know, sell side quality of earnings, understand what the story is. Don't focus so much on the perfect company. The perfect company doesn't exist. It's okay to have a story. It's okay. You know what? There's some warts here. Yes, there are. If you wait three years for me to fix all those warts, you are going to then have to pay a premium multiple against all the extra earnings. Think of it this way. There are opportunities in that company that will be solved on your watch. And therefore, you know, it'll create additional shareholder value, which will help you blend down that really high multiple I just told you you have to pay. So companies need to be prepared. They have to have a very tight story. Don't be afraid. Don't try to hide warts that you have. Spin them into positives. Understand, okay, this is my challenge and it's a real challenge. And here's what I'm doing to work to solve that challenge. And as I do fix it over the next couple of years, the upside benefit goes to the new owner. So be prepared. You know, selling a business is a very thoughtful process. It's, it's a very methodical process. And the more work that's done to prepare that company for sale, you know, and it, it's not just you know, doing quality of earnings reports, you know, market studies, how big is the addressable market? It's tell the story, support the story on the sell side, on the buy side, recognize that everybody's got money and everybody's paying high multiples, get over it, recognize that the new price is what it is. I think of this all the time when I think of certain stocks and yeah, I'll use Tesla as an example. You know, Tesla stock, just as it keeps going up, people think about it and say, it just doesn't make any rational sense, you know, and, but yet that's the price and the price continues to go up. And so you either stop buying that stock or you get used to the fact that there's a new base. And I would say that the base has definitely shifted with over $4 trillion in private, you know, private equity today with $1.4 trillion in, in powder looking for things to buy right now. There has been a shift in the base. PE guys, get over that shift, recognize where the new base is, and recognize that you have to put money to work. And if you're only deploying 60% of your LP's capital you know, in a fund, they're probably not going to give you as much money next time, if at all because you're not investing their money. So you have, to, you have to get companies to play the game. And if you're paying a little too much, so is the next guy. Your vintage fund versus someone else's vintage fund will reflect that. 
I completely agree with with all of that. Specifically, you know, we work on both the portfolio and the private equity side with regards to appointments and two sides of the business. But we get regularly approached by private equity investors who are frustrated because their firm has such a niche criteria where they won't move out of it, and it's a three x you know three x EBITDA max, um, and it means that they're you know they're like, well, the only thing we can consider is a really damaged or broken or heavily distressed business. I'm not a distressed investor. Therefore, I want to make some make a move to a firm that's a little bit more flexible um, with regards to criteria and recognizing the market that we're in. You know, you know, aerospace and defense, medical devices, tech, all these booming. I mean, AMD could argue, obviously, COVID's heard that, but it's still the multiples are still very much up there. Um, in my industry, in, you know, HVAC and refrigeration, I have seen multiples in four years go from eight to twenty. Wow. For a sizable asset, you know, that, that, you know, in my case, it'll be a multi-billion dollar sale next time I'm in the market. For a large asset like that, you know, multiples have, have more than doubled, you know, over about the last four years. And, you know, that, that is not an uncommon story uh, in many industries and in multiples. So sleepy old industries that used to trade at six to eight times, you know, or four to five times, are now getting double digit multiples because there's that much capital looking for things to buy. And you know when you start thinking about who does well in a recession, who does well in a global pandemic, the funnel of opportunities is continuing to shrink and you know who can provide consistent growth in uncertain times, you know, and the profile of these businesses, companies that can can check a lot of boxes for investors, multiples have creeped up dramatically. So uh, from one big question to another uh, for you, Adam, unfortunately, having you know, been through your career, you've completed many acquisitions alongside many exits across multiple companies, across many different industries. What are the biggest kind of lessons that you've learned? Uh, I mean, you've shared some with regards to advisors and, and utilizing them, but what are the kind of biggest lessons that you've learned along the way, which somebody who's earlier in their career um, could uh, could take advantage and not have to make maybe those mistakes or whatever else um, throughout theirs. So, you know, when I think about lessons learned, passion, probably number one. Another one that I haven't touched on today, though, probably worth mentioning is transparency and then also environment. So as a seller, I'm wanting to get maximum value. I want to pick the right partner for, for, for sure, but I'm trying to get maximum value. What hinders maximum value? Bad presentations, bad ability to present certainly is one we, we've covered that. Let's also talk about though environment. So first of all, I want to bring the buyer universe into my company. I don't wanna have secret meetings in hotel conference rooms where I'm giving a PowerPoint presentation and people are making huge decisions on what price to offer for business without them getting a chance to really come in and see it. And so I talk about in the first book for sure, this thing, and I mentioned it, I think in the second book too, about the Apple box. Every time I give a lecture at a university, uh, I may have 70 to 90 people sitting in the classroom. You know, I'll ask how many people were born outside this country and half the hands will be up in the air. We truly are a global world. And then I'll do a spot poll. And I've done this for almost a decade now, and it's amazing what I've learned. So marketing people, listen up. Uh, I asked two questions. First question I ask is, how many people in this room own an Apple product? And invariably, 90% of the hands go up in the air. Everybody's got an iPad, an iPhone, 
you know, a MacBook, something, you know, uh, you know, uh, they've got some kind of an Apple product. 90% of the world does. Uh, and then I asked this second question, which is really interesting. Of you 90% that have your hands up in the air, how many of you still have that Apple box empty sitting on a shelf in your closet? 90% of the hands still stay up in the air. Apple has done a world-class job at creating an affinity for their packaging. You know, and then just to get a laugh, I, you know, I ask people, how many people have a Dell computer and still have a Dell computer in your closet? And everybody starts laughing because nobody keeps a Dell box. Everybody keeps Apple boxes. And if you were to, if I were to turn my camera right now, I'd almost do it if I could reach it. I could open up this drawer and you're going to find all my active Apple products and you're going to find the empty boxes in the drawer because I'm guilty of this too. People create an affinity for their packaging at Apple. The only company that ever came close to that was Beats Audio and Apple bought Beats. And it was all about this affinity for packaging. And then I equate that to my business. Look, I'm selling this company. I'm going to have passion, passion for what I'm doing, passion for my people. Public speaking is something I am pretty good at. So it's like, that's where I'm going to shine is with that buyer universe. But I want them to come in and see my company as an Apple box. So when a team comes to a business, you know, guys look around, I'm an HVAC company. They're expecting a dumpy ass old industrial building with a bunch of trucks and, and, and what have you. And when they come to mine, you know, they, they come in and they see murals, you know, of our vision and our mission and our values and all around my headquarters environment. You walk in and when you stand in my lobby, there is no mistaking what I do for a living, what our corporate culture is like, what we think, what we value, and it's everywhere on the floor. It's on the walls. Here's what we believe in. Here's what we do. You know, I have TVs and, and seating areas that are playing examples of, of work we do for customers. You know, I have, you know, we keep things cold, you know, and, uh, and I have all these coolers. My, my reception desk is actually a reach-in cooler with sodas and frappuccinos and, you know, all kinds of drinks. And there's ice cream refrigerators or freezers on the wall behind there. And it's like, there's no question we keep things cold. That's what we do. And who we do it for is playing on a TV. And, and so, it, you know, to me, a home court advantage can be established by building a cool headquarters. And the research that I've done over a decade says that if you're a business, you can get half a turn to one turn of a premium by having a cool headquarters. So here's what happens. PE guys come in, they look around, they were expecting a dumpy asshole building. They saw one. They go down to their spreadsheets. What's the earnings? What's the multiple for the industry? What am I going to pay? When they come into an Adam Coffee company and they look around, they're like, wow, I wasn't expecting this. This is cool. There is passion here. It is different. There's something different. There's a different energy here. Then they look down to their spreadsheets and they say, what's the earnings? What's the multiple for the company? But now they add a new column. What's the premium I'm going to have to pay to own this asset before somebody else gets in here, sees this, and takes it away from me? And so having a cool headquarters that you can leverage because you've been transparent. You know, so example, I have 3,000 employees. I do roundtables where people, I get 1,000 employees to participate in, in my roundtables. Everybody knows we're owned by private equity. Everybody understands the difference between private capital, public 
companies. And the fact that I'm going to sell this business every three to five years, exit one set of institutional shareholders, bring in another. And this is not something to fear. It's not something that, that I'm going to hide. And I'm going to let you know when it's happening. I'm going to let you know how much EBITDA we have every year. When we hit a certain size, it's going to be time for my shareholders to exit. By being transparent, I don't need to be secretive. And one of the biggest mistakes I see entrepreneurs making is they are so secretive around the sale of a company. Don't want anyone to, to know and freak out. If they were transparent, if they educated their employees throughout the journey and said, hey, listen, we're a private company. I'm going to build this company. And there's going to be different shareholders that come and go as we continue our growth process until eventually we're big enough to hit the public markets. Uh, and so educate the employee base in order to be transparent. By being transparent, you can then focus on building an Apple box to help you get an outsized multiple for your business. And so all businesses trade in a range. Your job is to try to get maximum value within the range or set a new level you know, of a new range you know, by beating, call it the market and exceeding expectations. And I think those are kind of the mistakes I see. Entrepreneurs are, are too secretive. They're not transparent. And they tend to be stingy when it comes to investing in their own headquarters. And you know, let, let's use an example. So my headquarters, if, if I spend a million, $2 million to build out my headquarters, and then I'm going to sell a $100 million EBITDA business, and it's worth half a turn to a turn, I'm going to get 50 to $100 million extra because I'm cool, because I'm an Apple box versus having an old dumpy headquarters. And guess what? $100 million over a $2 million investment is a 50x return. I'm trying to sell a company for a three times to four times multiple of invested capital, 50 times return. That's a huge number. It's the single best investment I can make. And it has nothing to do with how much I spend per square foot. It's about immersing the buyer universe into your culture. Come see how we're different than the other you know, companies that are out there in an industry. Come look at my Apple box. Come drink from the well as I'm on my bully pulpit with my passion talking about how we're changing the world you know, at the company that I'm running. Put these things together, you get maximum value. One other thing I want to touch on real quick, uh, private equity guys, if you're out there listening, if you have an experienced CEO, use that. Allow them to some latitude to work the buyer universe before you ever hire an investment banker and you ever come to market. If you want a truncated, quick process at maximum value uh, and you have a competent CEO, then you need to allow that CEO to be engaging, to go to investor conferences, to give presentations, to attract, start attracting that buyer universe uh, six months before you're going to hire a banker so that they can start to build up some energy and some awareness of the asset going to be coming to market. People will engage early. Uh, I know the last time I sold my company, I probably brought myself 14 private equity groups into my headquarters without an investment banker, without you know a PE guy around. And I just gave tours and I gave my typical elevator speech. I got them into the Apple box early and my owner knew I'd been around the block a time or two, and they were more than comfortable with me doing that. We talked about parameters. What would we disclose? What we wouldn't disclose? 
But by bringing in the buyer universe early, working directly with the company, the CEO, I was able to what I call prime the pump and get, get the market ready so that by the time we hired a banker, I had five buyers wanting to do a preemptive strike. I never gave one management meeting last time I sold my company. I kind of gave them all before we, we started the process. And in reality, I had five buyers who wanted to come in and just lay down you know, a market clearing price and take the company off the table. We never actually got as far as holding and conducting management meetings because the buyer universe was ready to go. And to my earlier point, they were tuned into the fact that, look, if you want to put money to work, you have to pay market clearing prices. And the market's saying multiples are high. So you have to get over it, get ready to do that and recognize that when I'm buying an asset you know, with 40 million of EBITDA, it's not going to make a big difference if I spend one or two turns too much. When I'm selling an asset you know, that has 150 million of EBITDA and the market multiples have gone up more and I'm going to get you know, the accretiveness of that, plus I'm going to get the growth size, eh, it's okay. You know, it's, it's a part of doing business in today's world. And so I think those are kind of the keys on both sides where I think people can make huge differences uh, you know, in just small changes in behavior. You know, I've never even thought about how you package uh, like the 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 Apple thing. You know, I I completely get that. I've actually, I actually threw out all my app. I had it all, and I was like, I don't know why I'm holding all this stuff. And then my missus got an Apple Watch, and um, and I said, Oh, I'll throw this out. And she was like, No, I'm not throwing that out. And I was like, God, it's packaging. Well, when have we ever kept packaging for anything? And and I didn't even understand why I did it, but that completely makes sense. And I've never thought of that in relation to how do you package and, and promote a business. And it's amazing how close that passion side of things is to, to how you package in the business. And that's where the value, um, the additional value gets uh, gets thrown there. So I'd never even uh, uh, considered anything like that. But also, while you're saying that, I'm sure you've been having worked with multiple private equity firms and and sold and. Uh, uh, you're even cool sis to, to multiple firms. I've not been in a private equity firm's office that doesn't look a million dollars um, with regards to, uh, you know, everything around it is stupendous with regards to their offices. So clearly they're, they're doing that within their business. But why are we not doing that within the portfolio companies to really promote? Um, and it, it doesn't, it's not just making your office fancy, is it? There's the whole everything that comes with it and that passion that comes with it and demonstrating. And you know what? You it, it, it also creates. Uh, you know, when you think about talent and attracting talent to a company, when they come for interviews, you know, or they look at the business and they say, well, this is cool. You know, I want to work there, you know, and it helps in retention uh, as well. So there's tangible benefits to the company. And again, let me just point out, it's not about price per square foot. Mm-hmm. You don't have to build a $300 square foot law office. You know, it can be done on the cheap. It's just, it's about demonstrating passion for customers, passion for people, what you believe, what you do, creating an immersive environment. Because when they're looking at a, at a SIM or a SIP or a, you know, a, an investment book, you know, 100 page investment guide, it's words on paper, it's two dimensional. If you want top value for a company, you need to make it a 3D environment, an immersive environment. And again, transparency leads to openness. Openness lets you bring in and create the immersive sale process. Too many entrepreneurs, nope, can't tell anybody we're for sale. They're going to freak out. We're going to hold all our meetings in a hotel conference room and no one's going to ever see the business other than a few pictures I show. You're leaving money on the table. Absolutely leaving money on the table. 
Yeah, that's all, all really interesting stuff, Adam. So an easier question for you to ask and smaller one. Um, how can people get a hold of uh, a copy of this book and take some of the value that you've shared today and gather, gather a lot more? Because um, I know there's a lot more in having read it myself already. Yep. So, uh, book will be available anywhere you buy books today. So, you know, a- a- Amazon certainly is coming out in all formats, paperback, hard, hardcover, Kindle. Uh, it'll be on Audible as well or available as an audio book uh, soon as well. Uh, it comes out September 14th. That's launch day. Uh, and so you can find it online for sure. Uh, if you want to connect with me, it's, it's either go to LinkedIn. My name's Adam Coffee, C O F F E Y. Or you can go to adamecoffee.com uh, and you can, can visit my website and, uh, and, and connect with me through there. I have to tell you that it's been great writing the first book. It was fun to write the second book. I personally actually like the second book better than the first book. I think it's better written. I'm getting a little better at, at, at this process. But you know, at the same time, uh, it was so inspiring to me to hear from people from all around the globe. And you could kind of see it going country by country as the private equity playbook was getting out there. It launched in the U.S. It slowly picked up a voice in other countries and it kind of worked its way around the world. And I was hearing from people from all over the globe. They asked great questions. Uh, I try to engage with as many as, as I possibly can. And a lot of their questions really led to the second book. And so they read the first and they're like, what about this, Adam? You know, or I'm selling my business or I'm thinking about this. And and, and it was like, I kept hearing the same questions coming out of different countries, you know, around the globe. And uh, I was like, I took all those questions and I said, you know what, there's, there's a book here. The next book needs to address these questions because these folks read the first one and they had a bunch of questions. And so we're tying that together now in the uh, exit strategy playbook. Ultimately, I think there's probably four or five books, you know, that, that will come in this series. They'll all be playbooks. They'll all be kind of bite-sized pieces that aren't too, they don't require you to spend a hundred hours of your life reading or researching. You know, they're they're trying to take 20 years worth of knowledge and just impart some kind of wisdom in a very efficient manner. So I would encourage people to reach out, please ask questions. Uh, and hey, if you've got ideas on things you'd like for me to cover that would be interesting to you, you know, I'm also looking for that kind of feedback too. So uh, really appreciate the opportunity to get back on your podcast. Uh, I hope the, uh, the the viewers and listeners like it as much as the first, because I'd hate to disappoint if we were the number one downloaded last time. I, I want to beat that record and uh and take this Apple box and make us even better than we were last time. So th- thanks for the opportunity. Absolutely. And a big promotion as well for Apple. Um, who've, uh, <laughs> funny enough, have not sponsored this podcast, but have been very relevant uh, to what we've, uh, what we've done. Um, but yeah, no, look, Adam, thank you very much for sharing. You know, you bring a lot of passion, a lot of energy, but also most importantly, a lot of insight. And it's clear that people can come on this and, and take action. Uh, and that's exactly what we want. And no doubt why uh, that we'll no doubt have number one and number two now as the Adam Coffee podcast, I'm sure. But, uh, but yeah, thank you very much for, for joining us. Thank you for sharing your, your insight. I really appreciate it. Take care, everybody. Thank you. Excellent. So as always, thank you very much for for joining and listening uh, in today. And should you ever need support with either private equity professionals or portfolio executive hiring, please do reach out to me and Rural Selection and we'd be delighted to help. But uh, till the next time, keep smashing it. And thank you very much for listening. Thank you for listening to the Private Equity Podcast. 
on www.raw-selection.com. 